This is Live from the Table, the official podcast of New York's world-famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius <laughs> XM 99 Raw Dog and on the Laugh Button Podcast Network. What a show, what a show, what a show we have today. We have with us from the West Coast, Mr. Wayne Fetterman, Emmy-nominated stand-up actor, professor, and podcaster. His new book, The History of Stand-Up, from Mark Twain to Dave Chappelle, comes out March 15th. And he's also currently co-producing a new George, George Carlin documentary for yep. HBO and co-host the acclaimed podcast, The History of Stand-Up. I announced Wayne before I announced ourselves. That's okay. I'm Dan Natterman, and I'm with uh, Noam Dorman and Perry L. Ashenbrand, as usual. And Danny Cohen is with us. Danny, who's a regular here. Um, I said to Perry L., Perry L., find me a Gentile, because this podcast is too Jewish. But she got Danny Cohen. Apparently, there was a problem with the reception. Anyhow... Welcome, Wayne. It's been, I think, over a year. I haven't, I don't think, spoken to you. Maybe we spoke on the phone once, but I haven't seen your face since before the pandemic. So, good to see you. That was nice to see you. Is this, is this all going to be aired? My video as well? Well, I don't know. Perry, you're the producer, so you answer that question. Yeah, tell it. She's shaking her head yes. So. Yes. Got it. Okay. Uh, Wayne, congratulations on the monumental achievement of, this is actually your second book, The History of Stand-Up. His, his first book, you'll never guess, Perry, what his first book, it has nothing to do with stand-up. Tell me. It was, the, it was a biography of Pete Maravich, the basketball player. Really? Oh, wow. Pistol Pete. Yep, yep. The authorized biography. So, uh, that you talk about range. Yeah, I go all the way, yeah, from Phyllis Diller to uh, Pete Maravich. And the next book will be about Bitcoin, <laughs> which, by the way, is at $50,000. And I know, I saw. I, saw. I, sold, I had a whole Bitcoin and I sold all but 0.1. Uh, so uh, I'm a little disappointed. Oh, yeah. There it is, the history of stand-up from Mark Twain to Dave Chappelle. So why don't we get right into it? This is, this is the topic that I think our listeners are really going to enjoy. Noam doesn't seem interested at all. He's no, I'm <laughs> driving. I'm driving. I love oh, it. I'm stuck in so let me just tell you, I, I, I took a route which would normally have gotten me back at quarter to seven. There's something going on on the highway. Actually, I see some flashing lights now. It's like an accident. And we've been in the car for like an hour and a half on a, on a what would be a 45-minute drive. So okay. I know no, there's no I'm excuses like, in show business. but Noam likes political discussions, even though he owns a comedy club. That was sort of an accident. Um, <laughs> he, he also told me that he might be late and I said that is absolutely unacceptable <laughs> so it was either show up from the car or show up late so I actually to be, to, 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 you're actually correct it was irresponsible of me to, to, to take somebody on a trip I shouldn't have you know? and if I was if someone, like if someone was responsible to me I'd be annoyed with them right so I, yeah I, so I, I plead guilty I'm sorry when can we date, you mentioned Mark Twain, but when yes. can you date, from what date can we date? I don't know what I'm trying to say. When does stand-up begin is what I'm trying to say. Well, there is no right first stand-up, but I, some historians point to this guy that in, influenced Mark Twain, and his name was Artemis Ward. I don't know if you ever worked with him. Well, I haven't been <laughs> doing quite that long. But uh, there was something going on. This is, all right. There was something going on in the 1800s, around the 18, mid-1800s, which was called the Lyceum Movement, which was people would make these serious lectures and people would pay money to see. They talk about biology. They talk about American history. They talk about, it was just basically adult education and this, because we you, started you know, getting- you know, what's, you know what's funny about what you're, what you're describing to me, if you think yeah. about it, literally everything they paid money to hear was wrong. Every, every single <laughs> right. last fact. But go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> That's not true. There was some botany. There was a great bot. Anyway, so they had these lecturers. So there was this guy, without going into great detail, named Artemis Ward, who became famous writing funny letters that got distributed in newspapers. So he was like famous across the country for writing. Uh, his real name's Charles Brown, believe it or not. And so one day, He's, he's working in, in, uh, in Cleveland, and 
the minstrel show comes in, all right? And one of the minstrels starts doing bits from his newspaper letters. And he's like, what the, I didn't even know this was possible. But then he thought to himself, was like, oh, I didn't realize my written word could become a stage presentation. So he reinvents himself as this lecturer who's gonna lecture about this thing called Stories of the Baby. And his whole, uh, his whole take is that he will not talk about the topic of the lecture. So he starts doing these comedy lectures that are huge in New York. And then he just tours the country. He, like he would get a dollar a person to pay like to see him. So he got like $1,500 in for one night in San Francisco. That's a great story. Wow. In, 18, in the 1800s, that's like $100,000. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money, right. It would be like $47,000 now for just one night. Again, he had to pay his agent and whatever. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, so guess what? He goes to England. He's so popular, he goes to England. Of course, it's England, it's damp. He dies of tuberculosis. He's 34. Okay, he's, it's over. Shame. But before he died, guess who saw him perform? Mark Twain. We all know him. We give out the Mark Twain prize, right? So Twain sees him and like, oh, I'm an aspiring writer. I get, maybe I could tour and do this. So he had already, so he's like, I'm going to do these famous Mark Twain tours. And of course, Twain toured the world doing this kind of comedy lecture. Sometimes he would do some sad stuff, but basically that there's a whole book that says a Twain is the first stand-up because of these lectures. Wow. They ignore the fact that Artemis was the guy that inspired him. So, so those are kind of like the earliest but again, there was comedians, you know, I hate to say it in minstrel shows as well. So I don't know. No one knows exactly who the first stand up, but that's in my book. I have those two as the one of the four forefathers. But like when do you date kind of the modern era where a stand up just came out and talked about his life and say, ah, well, the other dad was doing this and my wife was. Well, let me ask you this. Would you count? This is just a question for the whole group, for everyone, even someone driving is. <laughs> He's not driving. I think he's stuck in traffic. I know he stopped. I'm looking at his window. It's just, oh, no, he's moving a little bit. Uh, would you count Bob Hope as a stand-up comedian? Of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he didn't talk about his life at all. I don't remember, to be honest with you. Um, oh, okay, okay. So it all depends. I'll, I'll tell you this, though. The word stand-up comedian, the term didn't come around until 1947. Oh, wow. And Bob... Yeah, so Bob Hope was doing it before then. There was also... Um, Uh-oh. Let's hear it. Um, I'm, I'm going to get shit for being pretentious for my accent for this, but the French critical theorist and philosopher... Oh, oh, my God. Well, it's true. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he wrote a very famous essay um, called On Laughter. What uh, year is this? He was born in 1859. Yes. And here. Well, I'm saying, yes. But what does that have to do with stand-up? He wrote about comedy and um, stand-up. But did he write about stand-up or did he write about comedy? Both. But you just want to to You just want me to be wrong. No, no. I I, I want you to be precise and and you have a track record, you know. No, I'll admit it. I'll admit it. I'd be very upset if she was correct. But I but uh, I I don't think there's any I don't think there's any chance of that. (laughs) So so that's kind of the roots of it. And then but really 19 like in the 40s, when they started calling these people were doing just standing alone on stage, telling getting laughs like what do you do Just stand. That's that's the gig. And so bookers would be like, that would be shorthand for that kind of act. Cause a lot of times acts would have like music and music cues and all of this stuff. But if they wanted to just, oh, can you give me a stand up? That doesn't mean there's nothing. You just need the microphone, the spotlight and the stage, that's it. Now stand up is perceived as an American invention. Yes. It's not accurate. I mean, I guess if Mark Twain and that guy Artemis was <laughs> the first ones, I guess it is an American invention. Mm-hmm. It sure is. And part of it, I think, has to do with right there in the First Amendment, right? They, like it's right in our founding documents that we're like, we're about free speech over here. Ooh. So I think that's part of it. And also, 
were a melting pot. So it brought a lot of different ethnicities. I'm talking to you Jews that came to this country escaping, <laughs> you know, and then they were like, oh, this is something I can do. I can stand up on stage and be funny. Cut to Milton Berle. And who was the first stand-up comedy manager? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, there was, you know, Will Rogers is also one of the founding stand-ups, but he was signed uh, to William Morris, not the agency, the actual guy, William Morris, <laughs> okay. in 1901 or something. So those guys have been around for a while. What do you, what, so, um, what do you think the evolution has been, if any? Like, we started watching stand-up. Yeah. Me, you, Danny, uh, know him to the extent that he watched stand-up uh, in the 80s and I guess the 70s. I mean, can you say that stand-up has evolved? In, yes. In any, in, any, yes. in any precise way? And if so, how? And, mm -hmm. and a, couple, a couple very interesting ways. Well, starting in the 50s, there was this guy, Mort Saul, we all know him. And he started doing stand-up it was sort of the, in a way, an alternative comic because the main comics were these nightclub comedians who were in tuxedos and working like these supper clubs. And then he worked this little room, which is very similar to the Comedy Cellar. It held a little more people. It was called The Hungry Eye in San Francisco. Have you heard of that at all? No, I no. just know the Eric Carmen song. Yeah, well, Hungry Eye was... I, like literally, I the way I describe it in the book is they sandblasted all the like the all the artifice of show business. So you know, think of like a big Vegas showroom or something like that with big booths and a lady coming around taking your picture, and you you have to give twenty dollars to get a good table or so that the hungry eye was in a basement like the Comedy Cellar, brick wall, the first brick wall place. And so, and then just a little square stage. And that's where Mort Saul started doing this. And he was like, professional nightclub comedians would look at him and go, oh my God, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. It's kind of halting. He's talking about the news. These aren't hard jokes at all. But the people in San Francisco, a little bit of the intellectual type, they loved him. Couldn't get enough of him. And then, so he influenced two comedians in particular, Shelley Berman, and Woody Allen. So then you, I'm sure you're from, well, maybe you're not. But anyway, those two guys said, oh, I think I could, I can do this. I don't know if I can do what Joey Bishop is doing at Caesars Palace, but I can certainly do this. And so that's how that started. And, and then, you know, next thing you know, the improv opens. And so now you have a comedy club. And not soon after that, Catch a Rising Star opens, or did you ever play there, Dan Natterman? Well, I, you know, I was going to play Catch a Rising Star. Catch a Rising Star here was on First Avenue, actually right across from where I currently live. And but years ago, oh. when I didn't live in this neighborhood, I went right. there to sign up for their open mic. I think it was, and it, had, and when I got there, it had closed. Like, oh my god, it just, what year was that? Ninety something? Ninety-three-ish. Uh, yep, yep. But then they opened a Catch a Rising Star on Twenty Eighth Street and Eighth Avenue. Rick Newman opened up another Catch a Rising Star. And it didn't work, but it was a great play. And all the wait staff was hired from FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology. Which yeah, was yeah, yeah. And these girls were so gorgeous. So it was, all, it was a lot of fun going down there. I actually, I never had sex with any of them, but, but, but the fantasy was always there. Of course. And, uh, it was a lot of fun going there because all the wait staff were FIT girls who were, you know, one was prettier than the next. But, um, and Rick Newman's a great guy and it was fun hanging out with him, but the club never really did any real business. Um, I don't think Danny, Danny, you, you'd ever played catch. I mean, that no, was, I, I started in 90, I started in 97. So, okay. Yeah. So that was after oh, that. Started well after I did. Yeah. Because we're right. Like, so the improv and the improv wasn't even around when you started, right, Danny? Uh, no, it was not around. Yes. Yeah, so, so did you, were you involved with the Greenwich village, like the alt scene down there, Luna lounge and all of I that? Played both, I played both groups. I would do, okay. I would write, I would write a certain way. For the downtown surf reality, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Rafifi, uh, yeah, all those right rooms, and then I would try to get into mainstream, and then right. I played both. At some point, I was still bouncing back. You couldn't do both in the same room. You have to do. They were both completely different. Right, 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 right. Wayne, I think yeah, Noam I, would, pro would probably be interested in knowing whether his club figures at all in your book, The History of Stand. Huge, huge, huge. First Why? of all, what? for a couple reasons. For a couple of one. 
it was part of the 80s comedy boom. So the, if I'm not mistaken, the cellar starts in about 82, right? Yeah, 81, yeah. And, okay, 81. And at that time, this is just a little nugget in the book that no one cares about except comedy nerds, which was they didn't really name comedy clubs without the word comedy in them starting in the late 70s. Like the improv, that's obviously not the name of the stand-up place, Catch a Rising Star, but starting with the comic strip, it opens in 76, and then the comedy seller, and then there's the comedy zone and the comedy works. And uh, well, well, I think like, I know the reason. Tell me, because it's reason, branding, right? No, the reason is because the improv, for sure, and I don't know the history of Cat, did not start out as a comedy club. It started out as a much broader entertainment room that wouldn't Correct. have wanted to narrow it. And, and I can remember going to catch in the 80s, and they had music acts, even even as late as the yeah, 80s. Pat music acts was a catch. Pat Benatar right. was a regular there, I believe. Absolutely yes. correct. So, so I think that's the reason. I, th I think it, uh, the comic strip at that point decided, no, we're going to be just co comedy. Right, right. And that happened all across the country for all of yeah. those rooms. I'm sure Danny has played those rooms where you're like, at the, you know, like, like I said, the comedy works or, or even the embarrassing ones like giggles and chuckles and yeah. yuck yucks and, you know, all of those shorthand <laughs> things where you would get a check and you'd feel like, oh, I'm the comedy womb is giving me money. This doesn't feel great, but I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. So now, can I ask you a question? Oh, when you're finished, I want to ask you a question. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's another no, reason the seller is important, yeah. but go ahead. Go ahead. No. Well, I, I know you want to talk about the seller. I should listen to that, but I, but we passed it by. I'm very interested in George Carlin because mm -hmm. as I kind of remember him, he straddled both types of comedy. He started out kind of like a nightclub comic doing, you know, that kind of stuff. And then had a total transformation into the introspective, smaller type uh, comic that you described. Is that correct? And, and how did, what caused that evolution? Oh, it's an incredible story. You absolutely got it right. He starts, he really, he has like this, he was part of a comedy team for a little bit, but he really starts his stand-up career in the village, working at a play called, place called the Cafe Agogo. Right. And, and the village is the scene. This is like, if you watch Mrs. Maisel's, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel's, like she sort of dramatizes it. So it's this scene, like he's down there, Richard Pryor is down there, um, jo Joan Rivers is down there, Woody Allen is down there, and Bill Cosby are, are all starting there. All of them make it to the Ed Sullivan show and well beyond. One of them made it all the way to jail, but I don't wanna go into that <laughs> right now. So. So Carlin's dream is to be Danny Kay. That's his dream. He wants to be a film comedian and he thinks he can do it through stand-up. So he is a nightclub comedian. He's wearing a short hair, jacket, tie. And then slowly as he gets older, he realized, oh, I'm like a, I'm a punk kid. I'm a rebel kid who used to steal a lot. I got kicked out of everything. I kicked out of the army, the Boy Scouts school he's this high school dropout the whole thing and he was identifying more with the counterculture even though he's playing he has a great phenomenal quote about like he would be entertained he was like around 29 or 30 he'd be entertaining people in vegas he's like oh i'm entertaining the parents of the people i want to be talking to so he basically drops that you know he had like ten thousand dollar a week job opening for the supremes in vegas stops all of that has a kind of a takes lsd sort of that's a mind-changing <laughs> thing and then becomes like this counterculture guy grows his hair out this all happens on tv and then guess what these albums become huge huge class clown amfm and then he writes this incredible routine about the seven words you can't say on television and suddenly he's bigger than he ever was working the mainstream clubs. And then that, so that was the first. And then later on, he had like another transition when he like started talking about a little more with a little louder, angrier voice about American culture. So you got that exactly right. Did you see him early on, Noam? 
No, I well, I would see clips of him on. I don't know. He used to do some of those old uh, Ed Sullivan type shows, yeah. whatever it is, and and I and I didn't recognize him. And then I don't know how just through osmosis, I kind of took that in. But the and I would even see pictures of him. The transformation was tremendous, you know. Um, and he, interestingly, he hasn't been canceled yet. There's a few people who haven't been canceled. One is George Carlin, even though he used the N word and he mm -hmm. used it, you know, brazenly. And the other guy actually who hasn't been canceled, it, it digress a little bit, is, is Randy Newman, who, uh, you know, used it in that song Rednecks, you know. Uh, um, uh -huh. So that's it's, it's, I don't it's think interesting. As unreasonable as these woke people are, there's a limit to their unreasonableness. And I don't think they're going to go back in time to a guy that clearly had good intentions. I don't think anybody can make any reasonable case that Carlin was a racist. I don't think they would go quite that far and try. Sure they will. Well, they st they still show they still on YouTube. If you look up George Carlin N word, you can still see his bits and they and get them while it, they're there because they're they're not going to be there much longer. I'm sure. Um, and, uh, Zach, Zach Galifianakis also had a uh, uh -huh. a bit that used the N word where he, you know I mean I won't say the bit. You can look it up, but. I don't think anyone's going to go back in time and, and try to cancel him. As I said, there, there's a limit to the unreasonableness, even of the woke, it seems to me. So you, I, know, you know, without, with, without getting into the debate of it, I, I have to acknowledge that as something has become more and more unacceptable and, and you don't hear it as reaction, it's jarring. And yeah. it, it's just a Pavlovian response. It's not, I mean, it's just syllables, right? And, and whatever they, they, they tell you, but, but it is jarring to hear people use that word now when apparently, you know, 20 years ago when we heard it, it wasn't, you know, it, it, I just, I, I just can't help thinking about that. Like how, how just like biochemically something yeah, has changed. Mean, the word oriental as a little kid, I used it to describe people from the far East and, and it seemed natural, you know, when I was very little and then at some point I forgot when, but it became Asian. And now the word oriental, it seems, you know, it's just you get used to things and, it, you know, it, it just seems ridiculous. So, um, I, I just arrived at a sh Shade Warman. So I'm going to be, I'm going to leave you guys for a few minutes. I'll try to, I'll try to. All right, cool, man. Wait, cool, man. why don't you finish telling us about the cellar? You were telling yes, us. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll wait for that. I'll wait for that. To talk about the comedy cellar history with the owner of the comedy cellar. That's what makes this podcast. I know, I know. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I get shy about that stuff, but go ahead. Well, it, the comedy you know, you cellar. Inside, you can run inside and get and get. Situated. Well, in a weird way, the comedy cellar is tied. The rebirth of the comedy cellar because is tied to the show Louis, and that that was shown at the top of that show, and Louis became the confessional comedian, like absolute, like opening up a vein, like the most embarrassing part of his life. That became the fodder for his bits. And people loved it, and including that show, the, just the raw honesty of it all. And again, the village has been around like part of the comedy scene since the early 60s. But what happened, and no one's, you were right there when it happened, suddenly people started flocking to that room to the point where you guys opened up a room around the corner and, and that's been selling out. So it's, it became, I would say, the New York epicenter of stand-up, maybe for the whole country, because in part because of that show, in part because the, the comedy seller did something that not a lot of rooms did, which was wouldn't drop a check during the show. And that was like a lot of people didn't like going to comedy clubs for that reason, because like in the middle of a headliner's act, suddenly everyone's trying to figure out who ordered the Mai Tai, and it's, you know, you, you've been there, Dan. Well, or maybe you haven't headlined yet. But when you start so, headlining. I, I, so, so, so let me give you a few comments on that before, before I go. So yeah. absolutely, we, we got a, a supercharge, a boost for, from that Louis show. Uh -huh. um, we were already on a, on a clear upward trajectory, which I attribute, by the way, I'm sitting here in the car with Steve, outside Steve. So if he, okay. he disagrees, he can, <laughs> he can chime in. But um, I'm in the open. we were already uh, on an upward trajectory, which I attributed very much to the internet and the uh -huh. that people, people were getting much better uh, and mo much more reliable information online about what was the best place to go and what was a tourist trap. Yeah, and that, no that helped us a lot. And then no Louis question. came and yeah, but then Louis came and that, and, and it kind of started out 
slowly. And then all of a sudden it was like, holy shit, people are just taking pictures of the front of the cellar and reenacting the Louie thing. <laughs> and I want to say, just so people know, we did not know or have any inkling that we were going to be featured in that opening until it aired. Louie never mentioned it to us, nothing. And as a matter of fact, there's another, there's an additional layer to that story, which I think is interesting. If you notice the first season, although we were in the opening credits, we were equally featured with Caroline's. Right. And if you want to know the backstory on that. I do. So at, the, at, the end of the, at the end of the first season, after noticing the impact on business, which was clear. So originally, Louie had been paying me like, I don't know, $1,500 or something, you know, something just to cover costs for whatever the, the, his, the impact of accommodating his taping was on our, on our revenue. So we, they were paying us a lot. But then when I saw what it was doing for us, I felt that this was, I was being a, a chazer as juice, you know, being a pig. So I went to Louie and I said, listen, Louie, I've never seen any impact from any exposure ever in the history, in 30 years, I've never seen any impact from it, but this is for real. So from now on, I, I don't want a dime. You just shoot whenever you want. It'd be ridiculous for me to take money for, for the kind of uh, benefit that I would cost me hundreds of thousand dollars to buy. And I think at the very same time, Caroline said, Louis, you got a hit. I think you should pay us more. Uh, I, I don't know that for sure. I don't know that for sure. But I suspect that because the, the following year, Louis never shot again at Caroline's and he dissed Caroline's on stage a few times. So some, something went wrong. So there's a lesson there, which is not, which is a, it's a business lesson. It's not a comedy lesson. Yeah. Which is don't be a pig. It pays right. off. So yeah it, yeah, it really does. Can I ask so you a quick Louis, question? Can I ask you a quick sure. question? Uh, just yeah. about the early, before, like right before the internet really blew up, there was already like kind of a scene down there with you and the Boston Comedy Club, right? Yeah. And uh, what was- for the, those who don't know, the Boston Comedy Club was in New York City. I know, the, right. And I people, call it the I, I, curiously I, named Boston Comedy Club. Yeah, one time, because I was so used to it and didn't even realize how odd that was. So <laughs> I went on, I think it was Conan, O'Brien, when he used to do the show here in New York, and he said, right. our next guest is a regular at the Boston Comedy Club right here in New York, and everybody laughed. <laughs> and I didn't, I was like, yeah, I guess that is funny. I'm just so used to the Boston Comedy Club. I right, didn't right, right. Bizarre. But Go ahead, go ahead, give me a question. No, but the, I was just curious about that scene. Like, what was your relationship with, I guess, was Kat still running it? And then, like, did you share comedians? If someone didn't show up, would you say, hey, come on over? Was it... Because you were so yeah, I, close I, to each other, right? Well, we, you know, we, 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 we were friendly competitors. We would definitely would share comedians. And, you know, we, we, but we were, we were also a little hostile to each other. And, and oh. Barry Katz and I actually had a terrible falling out one time because when I, I was at that time playing in my band in the Cafe Wa, and he came into the Wa with Jason Steinberg. And he was really disrespectful to the, we, I, I don't want to talk bad about it because we're very good terms now. But right. I, I think they were drunk and they were disrespectful to the performers and they hung some boxer shorts on the air conditioning duct or something ridiculous. And I got furious and I didn't really know who he was. And I said, get the fuck out. So I had a big fight and I kicked him out. But, um, but, then, we, but then we made up uh, and um, yeah, but he ran that club quite differently. He ran that club almost very smartly, smarter than us in many ways. He ran that club as a kind of panning for gold uh, mm -hmm. enterprise. And, what, and, and that, was, that was his intention all along, was to find some stars. Some talents and scoop them up. Yeah, yeah. He, he wasn't okay. a... And, and, yeah, and, and, I, and our philosophy was exactly the opposite. We, we and this was really from my father, assiduously resisted any temptation. No, I'm, you're, you're freezing. Here. That's you're, it. Well, he can't. That's not his fault. I don't know why you're yelling at him. I'm not. Yeah, I wasn't. Was I, was I raising my voice? Uh, well, just whilst I have a moment. Um, I'll maybe go into your house and get installed in front of your computer and then. Yeah, okay. I want to hear the end of the story. Yeah, he's got it. He, yeah. I've frozen on like, yeah. Yeah, we'll see you inside. We'll yeah. see you inside. But just, okay. just while he's getting inside, I just yes. want to say that for Barry Katz, who is the owner of the Boston Comedy Club in New York City, around yeah. the corner from the cellar, again, just for people that don't aren't familiar with the scene and how it was, Barry was a talent manager. He made most of his money 
managing people like Dave Chappelle, Jeff Ross, I think the Freelander, pretty much everybody on planet Earth was managed by Barry Katz at one time or another. Jay Moore. Jay Moore, yeah, a million people. So that was his main source of revenue. And the club was just something he had on the side just so his clients could perform. Interesting. Whereas Noam was a comedy club owner, or Noam's father at that time was a comedy club. That's how he made his money, owning a comedy club. He didn't have any interest in being a manager or being in, in, uh, in that part of the business. So, right. so a lot of comedy club owners are talent managers. They ultimately, they want to produce a sick, they want the glory, the Hollywood glory, producing a sitcom, uh-huh. their name in lights. The Norman family just were comedy club owners. They were there to sell fries, burgers, and hummus. And right, comedy. right. And at the end of the day, I, you know, they did pretty well with it. I mean, I, you know. A, a very successful nightclub. It's a beautiful nightclub. They're, they're nightclubs. Right, I mean, right. Their right. aspiration wasn't to be Hollywood players. Uh-huh. Whereas, whereas Cats, that's what he wanted, and, and that's what a lot of club owners. We're talking, guys, we're talking comedy history here. We'll be right back. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We don't break away. We don't break away. No, which is unfortunate because sometimes breaking away allows you to reset. and Yeah, does that give you a chance? You get some water. It's and then you come back and say, we're talking about, you know, and you reset the room. Right. But, um, I get, no, is Noam, he's no longer on the Zoom? No, he, no, yeah, he's going to reset. He's going to reset. He walked into the house and he'll, he'll come back. The Boston Comedy Club was the first comedy club I ever went to when I took oh. the train, uh, the subway. I grew up in Queens and I used to take the subway when I was like 15 years old into the city. And um, I'll never forget, I was about 15 years old. I thought I was the coolest thing in the world sitting in the front row of the Boston Comedy Club. Yeah, they didn't card, I guess, at the Boston Comedy Club. Well, no, I mean, they didn't care. It was like the 90s in New York City. They didn't give a shit. Right. Well, but the 90s is still kind of the modern oh, era as the carding is concerned. I mean, I don't think the seller ever let anybody in that was 15 years old. Well, I had a fake, I had a fake ID. Yeah, but you were 15. I mean, I, I, Do you remember who you saw that you? night? So I was sitting in the front row thinking I was so cool. And there was this young, very funny black guy on stage. Dave Chappelle. He, and he was like, you're kind of cute. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. And he was like, you have any black in you? And I was like, what? No. And he was like, you want some? And it was Chris Rock. Oh, Chris Rock. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of a stock line, unless Chris wrote it. But right. Was, but you do been- that line also, Dan, right? <laughs> I do. Uh, it never seems to work for some reason. I know. I've seen you do it. But... um. That's kind of a stock line. It may be that Chris wrote it or that he didn't, but he was very young. And anyway, right. Noam, so you were in the middle of saying, what was Noam in the middle of? No, he was talking about the differences between the two clubs oh, and the yeah. f- friendly rivalry. I think you covered it. They just said they, that he, Barry Katz ran it to, to get himself where he got himself, which was you know, the top of the talent managing world. <laughs> and we ran it to... Um, be the best comedy club as it were and, right. and and both of us ended up where we in, intended to be and and you know in, intention it's like one of those self-help books but it really does matter you visualize where you want to be and, and it's very important to get there um yeah. speaking of club owners that are managers yeah uh i assume you know wayne i i it's yeah you like to put it in the book but richie tinkin uh died this week mm-hmm. he was the found one of the founding owners of the comic strip here on the Upper East Side, where I live. Um, they all they're all gone now. John McGowan, um, Bob Wax, and him founded the club. They they have been gone for years, uh, and he he died this week. But he was Eddie Murphy's manager and Adam Sandler's yeah. manager. But he was Eddie's manager during the time when Eddie went from unknown comic to SNL star to movie star. Right. And he even has a cameo, Richie Tinkin does, in the Party All the Time video when Eddie Murphy right. uh, briefly became a uh, pop artist. He's also seen in the Delirious special. Yes, and he's also in the last scene of Beverly Hills Cop 2, where he plays like the, uh, some rich right. Beverly Hills person. Did you, uh, Noam, did you ever meet Richie? I think I did, but I, but I didn't have much interaction with him. I think he came in one time as an old man. Right. But Noam was the opposite of Richie. Richie was a hard scrabble guy from the Bronx or something. Yes, like. yeah, yeah. He left home at 13. He became a bingo hall manager or something like that and a bar owner. And he, 
and uh, and ultimately the comic strip. Whereas Noam, uh, the finest schools, uh, Tufts University, uh, hard, the hard scrabble part of the Ivy League, though, Dan. <laughs> well, UPenn Law, um, very very different. Uh, but they all they both wound up comedy club owners. Um, but anyway. Uh, did you, uh, uh, wait, do you have any relation with Richie at all? Or? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the that was sort of the club, my club there. For, you know, when I was in New York, after I went to NYU, that's where I started my career, and then moved out to LA in the like '86. But was he in the book or the club in the book? The, yeah, the comic strip is just mentioned. I don't mention his name or anything. But my one crazy memory of Richie Tinkin was, um, you know, at the height of that Eddie Murphy frenzy and it was a crazy frenzy that one night I guess he was drinking and then he went outside in front of the comic strip and was driving golf balls down first avenue just and yeah. wait, Richie was yes, yes. okay Richie thinking yeah but yeah, he was but he was the king I guess of the Upper East Side at that point so yeah it was pretty now, crazy excuse me like, second avenue second I don't know why I said first avenue yeah it was second avenue okay, you said first avenue because first avenue goes down and that's where he was that's driving right 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 I was thinking that, no because of catch a rising star no it was on Fifth avenue actually goes northbound yeah yeah so the, he was driving them yeah yeah so but he was I don't know he was very interesting guy and I remember he would make the schedule Noam, I don't know, you don't make the schedule, but he would make the schedule on like Sunday night and all the comics would be gathered around. There was no cell phones at that point. And they'd make it at the end of their bar and then he'd kind of throw the clipboard with the schedule as it slid down the bar and he would just say, read them and weep. <laughs> that was his... Well, he so like up, just a bunch of desperate comedians. It's got to be the worst. Yeah, let me actually, I'm going to ask Noam about that. Like, what is that pressure of like everyone wanting to play your club and having to say no? How hard is that emotionally for you? Well, I don't have to do it, thank goodness. That's Esty uh, is, yeah. is, is my buffer. Um, and she, uh, she enjoys it. <laughs> no, it, she, she, she handles it with grace. It's, it's very, very hard. And actually it's different, it's different as I'm thinking to myself, there was a, there was a time when it was hard because there were people who were just delusional and not that mm -hmm. good and they never got a laugh or, or be marginal and you had to let them down easy and now it's hard in a different way because everybody's so good uh and why do you think that is why do you think like the entry level comic is is better than it was several years ago i i know what's your th would you have you have a thought on that i do but i would like yours well um, you know maybe as comedy becomes a more viable uh route um you know, more, more, I don't know, the, the more intelligent people that might have otherwise been, uh, right. you know, uh, lawyers or doctors decide that they're going to be comics. Well, I, th I think that Dan, Dan made an observation one time, which I'm surprised he didn't come back to today, yeah. which is that um, the, the comedians are older than they've ever been. And that would seem to imply that they've accumulated, the good comedians have been able to make a living a middle-class mm -hmm. living where they maybe they weren't able to do that so they stuck around in the business and the talent accumulated and i also think that um we're living in a golden age of comedy quality and i think golden ages are unpredictable and magical we've seen them in music and in sports and i think there's just like when you have people like Chappelle and rock and bill burr and, and louis ck and all at the same time that, there's just a little coincidence to that, I, I think. But I don't, you know, maybe there's other factors. What do you think? The internet? There I don't are, know. There are, there are also, there are recipes. I mean, you know, there are recipes for comedy. So you just have to figure out what the recipe is. Like chef, it's like being a chef. You can, you can learn how to cook. And if you're good and you like food, you can become a great chef because now you just go on YouTube or you go on Food Network and you can, you can sort of figure out how to become a chef. And you can figure out how to become a comic. It's, it, there are recipes. There, there are probably like two or three different categories of stand-up. And then you find one that works for you. And then, and then you have to have timing. But a lot of people have timing. 
I have a lot of funny friends that aren't stand-up comics. They're hilarious. They just don't make it. They they don't make. You know, I, th I think. Money I think that 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 my, my what I had brought up before and neglected to bring up this time might be the best theory is that the comics are just more experienced than they've ever been. I mean, I've been at it over twenty years. When when I started doing comedy, no, the only people that have been doing it as long as I've been doing it now are like you know Rickles, me. I mean, like Seinfeld was only when I started you know, maybe 20 years in, maybe, not even. I mean, we've just been doing it for so long because so many comics got in in the 90s right. and we're still here. What? It's, it's also the inverse of, I mean, co comedy, comedians are A-level, it's an it's A-list a industry, like it sells out the garden. When we were kids, yeah. rock stars would sell out the garden. Right. But, but, and now it's comedians sell out the garden and uh, rock stars don't get better with age. Comedians do get better with age, oh, which is interesting. interesting. And, and, and rock stars don't appeal to young kids once they get to a certain age, but somehow comedians do maintain their appeal to young kids as they get older. So, I'm, so I'm not answering any question, but there are these interesting observations to think about and maybe yeah. co cobble them together into some grand theory. I don't know. But Wayne said he had a theory, so what was your theory? No, my theory was very much that a stand-up comedian, somebody who's interested in being a stand-up comedian, let's say you're a funny kid in school, and you're like, oh, Bad. people want me to like you can go on youtube and see hours of john mulaney's development and you're like oh i could see what that is i could see hours of bill burr i can see hours of and you're like oh so you're already exposed to level 10 stand-up at an early age and you can see the development of the person so it's like you're already at a comp whereas when i started like oh let me buy a you know, a Carlin album or a prior album or something like that. Or, and so that's what I, I think. I just feel like, like the base knowledge of what it is and what you have to do to be funny is just out there now. One we, thing we do know for sure. A lot like what Cohen said was that there's a recipe, you know. Anyway, yeah, it is a little bit. Yeah, no question. No question. One thing, one thing we do know for sure is that right. the, the theory in, for the comedy uh, collapse, the, whatever the opposite of boom is, yeah, uh, trough. Um, in the '90s, the theory yes. then was because well, it's all on TV now, and the overexposure killed it. And I, to, to toot my own horn, I always said no, it's because the comedians suck. And it's clear now that it wasn't because of the overexposure, because there's never been more exposure than than on YouTube. People were worried that oh, now there's a comedy network that shows clips of stand-up comedy and now right. people and that's why they're not going to clubs that had nothing to do with the reason they weren't going to clubs they stopped going to clubs in the 90s because they went and they weren't funny they were they were, they were just too many clubs and not enough funny comics and now that the comics are funny well, i think there are they, still they get busier the more they can watch it on tv just like the grateful dead they, they, you don't you can't really burn material if it's funny people they, will watch it 10 times and then pay buy a ticket to come see you say it again but no, I mean, what you call a comedy boom is really a comedy seller boom because the other club before the pandemic, now everybody's closed, but before the pandemic, the other clubs were not doing particularly well necessarily, many of them. But I think there's a nationwide comedy boom. There's a Netflix comedy boom. There's a lot, of, as I said, Madison Square Garden uh, yeah. comedy boom. Your average comedy club in, in, in Indianapolis, unless it's a huge headliner, it's yeah. not gonna be full. Yeah, yeah I but the rollings were down, you know, uh, you'll get with whoever's there, but and some clubs are better than others. Uh, One know, thing to throw, the, the, the comics today are really, really funny. It is completely different. I agree different, with that. Completely different that. than it was in the 90s. Complete, where in the 90s, you'd have one act, two acts, and you'd be like, ah, let's see, we'll, 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 let's just cross our fingers and hopefully we'll but get through the other three. There were some very in, innovative also, characters when I was starting that I'm not seeing as, like, dice. And uh, and uh, uh, emo Tennyson. Oh, Tim and, and, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, Stephen Wright were all very innovative. Yeah, even, you know, even if their joke writing wasn't as good as Gary Goldman's or whomever or Dimitri Martin's, they 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 they, they were their character was very. Also, uh, in the nineties, a lot of the New York comics that were really good got deals. Took a bunch of their friends who were also writers and comics in the clubs went to Hollywood and did their sitcom. And then all of a sudden you had a lot of people, there weren't any great comics in New York because they were all getting deals. Then reality TV came along 
-hmm. All these comics started building up and building up. Nobody was getting any deals in the late 90s. And then in the 2000s, no, not one comic got a deal ever. Like it was like six years went on where television didn't give any development deal to any comic. So they all built up and then there were a lot of comics. So now there's a, a lot of great comics in New York City. Uh, whereas in the 90s, they all went to Hollywood and took a bunch of writers with them, a bunch of other comics. So there was a mad exodus to Hollywood with, with the, all these sitcom deals. Yeah, that is that's a great point, Danny. I'm going to read a little something from my book. These are just 90s comedians that got not only shows, but shows on the air. Ready? Yeah. Here we go. Margaret Cho, Dice Clay, Anthony Clark, Dave Chappelle, Sam Kennison, Greg Giraldo, Sue Costello, Richard Lewis, Tamayo Atsaku, Ellen DeGeneres, Drew Carey, Chris Rock. I'm just at the ease at this point. This list goes on and on and on. Campanera. Yeah, so there was a big, there was a boom for that kind of thing. So that might have been the reason there was maybe a dearth of comedians in yeah. New York at that time. Yeah. So that and also, I, I, I feel like partly in uh, when, the, when Letterman came back to New York, I think also that helped kind of start a renaissance of like, oh, I can be in New York and I can do letter, you know, an 11.30 show instead of having to be out in LA to get the Tonight Show. I'm, like, let me I'm, ask you this, no, like when Macaulay, do you remember Jim Macaulay was booking the Tonight Show? Did he ever come into your club? No, I don't believe he did. We, we, we were never... We were never good at getting into that into that pipeline for the Tonight Show. I think I think that when Ray Romano uh, yeah got his Letterman spot, I think through the comedy show, that was the first time really that we had been involved in that sort of thing. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just saying it wasn't. And now I feel like New York is, like I said, an epicenter. He but was a right huge. He was a huge uh, um, uh, event for us. Ray. Ray, big, very big. Yeah, because he was the first like really guy who identified himself publicly with the comedy seller who became mm -hmm. a mega star like that. By the yeah. way, uh, Wade, I'm keeping a close eye. Your, your book is out on the 15th, is that correct? Yeah, Ides of March. I will be keeping, that's right, the Ides of March. I will be keeping a close eye on your book sales because <laughs> where you goeth, I will follow because I wrote a book myself. What is it? All? So tell me it's not the history of Stan. Oh, it's a novel. It's a novel. Please, God. It's oh, it's a novel about it's a, a novel, comedian. But, but it's about it's it's about a stand-up. Of uh, course. So so well, not of course. I mean, I, originally I wanted to not write about stand-up because I'm like, no, I want to do something different. But then I thought, well, you know, a that's what I know, and b there is a market, a niche one perhaps, but some market where people have just did. So the point is, is if your book becomes a runaway bestseller, yeah, well, which you're laughing at, so that's not a good sign. <laughs> But I'm interested in knowing what the market, like my book, I, I'd like to think is literary in some way and would appeal to anybody, but it would especially appeal to people that are into stand-up. Mm -hmm. so I look to your book and see well, how, the, how many spirits are out there is the question. I don't know. We're going to find out. We're going to find out on the 16th of March. Yes. Uh, we'll know soon enough. And it's right there on Amazon. You can't hide your book sales from that from that place well, you, you, yeah and also can i ask what era this comedian this comedian, present day present day present oh present day present okay day. is he new york so based not the history of believe me i'm not stepping on your toes in the slightest there's no history here okay does it's he work does he work the seller no but he does work at the comedy den which is based on the seller oh okay <laughs> and tell me about the guy who runs the comedy den in your book oh god he happens to be a former lawyer <laughs> <laughs> That likes to talk about politics. He's, yeah, really. the, the owner of the, the in my book, the owner of the comedy den is the closest <laughs> is the closest to real life guy. I mean, he, he's the person I ripped off the most because right. I knew one wouldn't mind because he's not in show business. Like other comics would be like, "Hey, what the fuck? You know, you're taking my character. You stole my essence." <laughs> uh, but but no one doesn't care. You know, no one would be oh, happy I for me. Care? I'm flattered. It's um, uh, nice. So so um. So anyway, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, you got to market the hell out of this though, Wayne. This shit doesn't sell itself. I mean, you got to go on podcasts and. How, well, I, I am doing a um, doing podcast. Thank you, by the way, for inviting me to this. This was very Perry. I don't know how you even found out about it. Um, so I'm doing some podcasts. 
hopefully some press in some newspapers, if anyone cares, but that kind of adds a, a level of like authenticity to the project. And I'm going to be going on uh, Jimmy Fallon. Oh, that's amazing. You're yeah, doing so I'll be the Fallon or you're just going to talk? Say it again. So you're doing a set on Fallon? No, I think I'm just going to sit down like a pretentious author. How do you think I'm going to do, Dan? <laughs> How do you get on Rogan? That's where all the money is. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's where the books and Marin. You get on Marin too. Yeah, Marin, I'd love to get him. I'd love to get him. Natural for Marin. Why would well, I know? Marin knows you, right? I mean, you, you guys. Yes. Know. Yeah. 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 I'm look. I'm very close. It hasn't happened yet, but it's in the works. It's in the works. Let me put it that way. Do you have yeah. any blurbs? Do you get any blurbs for the book? Three. Three. Who blurbed you? Two people I don't think you're going to know. One is Journey Gunderson. She's the executive director of the National Comedy Center. Well, the other one is Cliff Nesteroff. He wrote an amazing book called The Comedians. Mm -hmm. And then Judd Apatow. He's like a comic who wants to direct. Yeah, yeah I've heard of him. Right. <laughs> now, do the, you know, I read a lot of blurbs. Com comedians write books, mostly memoirs. Yeah. Our own Perry L. Ashenbrand wrote a memoir. Um, but a lot of comedians write memoirs, a couple write novels, mostly memoirs. But a lot of the blurbs on these books, it's clear whoever wrote the blurb didn't read the book. Right. You know, you'll read a blurb like, uh, say a blurb like, uh, I don't know, who wrote a book? Uh, Tom Papa wrote a book. I, I, I don't know what the blurbs are, but theoretically or hypothetically, somebody write, Tom Papa is always funny every time I see him. All right. It's just okay, a, a vague thing about Papa. But yeah. what about the book? You know, it if you like it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. The, the blurb is really for you give the blurb to your agent and then the, that helps the agent sell the book to the publisher. That's really what the blurb is for. The blurb doesn't help sales to the consumer. I don't think it does. I, that's why I, I didn't make it a big, a big part of my, my campaign. But we're going to say I do think the story is compelling and I do think there's an interest in stand up in a big way. And have you followed? There's a young she's a i think she's yeah she's got her master's degree and she puts up videos kind of pontificating about stand-ups and stand-up comedians on youtube and she's pretty compelling and she's her research how is, many how many views is she getting now it's all about views i know i know not a lot yet but uh but it's it i don't know who knows it's interesting katie mears is her name but i'm for, gonna write that down that's the wrong question dan katie mears <laughs> I'd love that you get yelled at by your. Uh... For any of you, I don't know. So, so we. She's a shrew, Wayne. She's a shrew. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no, I'd liked it. <laughs> uh, by the way, um, we've almost done it, Wayne. I don't know if you you have time constraints. I'm I'm good. I'm totally good. But uh, we, there are some interesting things that happened this week outside of the comedy. Yes, world. let's move on. Want, yes, you might want to get to. I know Noam loves to talk about politics. I haven't got so, much time, Dan. Get to, get to, I'll do one, do one. What's the quick one? Who do I want to talk about? There's, there's Cuomo, who's mm -hmm. in deep kimchi. Give us um, multiple choice. Like what? Two, three, top three. Well, there's Cuomo, and then there's Dr. Seuss. Mm -hmm. Want to talk about Dr. Seuss? No? Yeah. Let me hear the third. <sighs> Cuomo. Oh, it's Su just those two. Okay. I think that's, I mean, what else big happened this week? Perry Ale, I heard just like, I don't know. I, the seller, the comedy, and the comedy seller is, is reopening. So, no, what, what topic do you want to address? Oh, what date is that? When does it? Yes, that's what I want to talk about. April second, they're going to let us open again with one third capacity. Uh, I'm, I'm not. Uh, so, the Cuomo thing, uh, right? Quickly, I think um, what I, what I would like to say about that is, is, is zooming out, is that I think we should congratulate ourselves here, and 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 I, by congratulating ourselves, I mean me, that we were, <laughs> we were really more correct about every single issue in the last year on the coronavirus than maybe any other um, place in the world. We called masks. We called Cuomo concealing information. We called uh, uh, that the vaccine would, would come along. What, what didn't we call? We, we called that they should be shutting down early. I mean, every single thing about COVID Right. We turned out to, to be correct on. Well, no, I'm since even you know when we had the nerve to disagree with our experts like Periel's friend Satish, you know, the, the virologist. And Periel said, How could you say such things? That's what I think. Turned out we, we were even <laughs> correct about about those things. What did you and, say to what did Satish say that wasn't right? Well, I told you that they'd be stealing PPP, PPE, uh, remember? That was me though, that wasn't him. <laughs> 
No, and he didn't. He didn't think they'd have a vaccine in time. Right. That's he, he didn't. He didn't trust the mRNA. So, but so Cuomo. The big scandal with Cuomo is is really um, lying allegedly about the deaths and the various cover-ups. The the this the sex scandals. I mean, if he tried to kiss this woman against her will, that, I'd say that's serious. Um, the the rest of those things don't sound to me like um, resign demanding offenses. It sound they sound boorish as hell, but um, you know it, it, they're not coercive. But the but if he if he physically tried to make somebody kiss him, I guess that's. That might have to be the end of him, right? I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think he'd do better to just come clean and apologize. I, I know if I heard him say, Periel, you're a woman, you can tell me what you think. If you heard him say, listen, I really liked her. I got carried away. I thought she liked me too. And I tried to kiss her and I feel like a jackass. What, what, would, you, what would your reaction as a woman be to that? Cuomo accused of unwanted <laughs> advance at a wedding. Can I kiss you? No, no. This is, I'm talking about Lindsay Boylan. The, the, yeah, the, what? We know her, don't we? Hasn't she been on the show? I, she, I don't know. I'm not really. What? So what's the accusation here? That he tried to kiss somebody that didn't want to be kissed? He tried to kiss her. The, the wedding's not an employee. He tried to kiss. I mean, that's that's. I mean, I'm not defending it, but I don't think that's the main thing here. I think it's the people who work for him. Uh, that's much more serious because they have, to use Louis's word, a dilemma. When they know that the boss is interested in them sexually, they have to figure out how to negotiate that dicey situation. And Parallel, you've probably had to negotiate that situation. I mean, in my, I usually just fuck the boss. It always seems much <laughs> well, easier. That's one way to handle it. Okay. <laughs> and rise to the top. Option A. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then, so that's, that's Cuomo. I mean, I, I there was the Mr. Potato Head was in the in the uh, news. Yes, but listen, and we said we said we said on this on this show that I said that Cuomo had a very good bedside manner that was fooling everybody. It had nothing to do with his competence. You remember people were we, people were outraged that we were saying this. I was outraged. Outrage. I recall you saying it. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't know. I don't know the specifics of it. You know, it's it all. It's hard. It's hard to judge that stuff. You know. Now I don't what about what about Dr. Seuss? Quick, what did Dr. Seuss do? It's a wedding, un, unwanted sexual kissing, trying to kiss somebody at a wedding. Also, I don't know. I don't know what it, what does that mean? Somebody tried to kiss you against your will. I mean, you know. Well, when you go to France. They're gonna kiss you. No, he said he's at the wedding. The wedding thing, and the wedding was not somebody that worked for him. He put it, his hand on her back and said, I want to kiss you. And Wait, this is Dr. Seuss did this as well? No, I'm sorry. He came on to a girl at the wedding. He harassed. Yeah, no, I got that. No, I just, no, no, I know. I mean, he harassed. He came Paris, on to a girl. He lunged at you and kissed you four times. They just come at you. They don't even ask. He came I'm on to a girl. In France. They just They'll kiss you in a tree. They'll kiss you in a bed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would not, could, would not, could not. In France, they kiss you on the cheek. They kiss you on, the right. on each yeah, cheek. And, and in France, apparently, they, they write a lot about comedy history, too. That's yeah. what I learned today. Now, so what did Dr. Seuss do? Dr. Seuss, apparently, six of his books, out of the, I think he wrote 60. I didn't know it was that many. Uh, the, the company that the uh, Dr. Seuss Productions, whatever it's called, the company that owns the, the books, uh, decided to cease publication of six of the books because they have racist language yeah. and imagery. One of the books, the only one I've seen is, <clears throat> it, it says a Chinaman eating with sticks. And it was a picture of a Chinese guy, kind of like he, he's got like a traditional Chinese garb on, he's got like one of those cone hats and like a, like a, Traditional Chinese garb, and he's got a long ponytail. Right, right. And, he, and, and he's got chopsticks. And so the, the, the issue is, A, the word Chinaman, which is obviously yes. an outdated word that we don't use anymore. Right. And some people had a problem with the image itself. I don't, can you see it, Noam? You could probably find it. Uh, no, I, I wasn't looking. I was looking at, there, there was some other. There was some other things. Yeah, that, no, he said, there's been a long kind of history of, of him with those, especially during World War II, he did some more propaganda cartoons that, so, yeah, no, the, that were- The World War II, he was, uh, he was, he was anti-Hitler, but he did, right. before he was Dr. Seuss, and I think it was Gavin Chow, but he did some cartoons like this, his kind of mocking uh, cartoons yes. of, 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 of black people. I will take it off, I don't know if you're, if you're allowed to show that, but that's, that's what he's in, in trouble for. So, of course, these are, these are disturbing images. Um, 
and I imagine I imagine that they were. Um, this is the Chinese one we're seeing right now. Yes, I, I see it. I I don't know that actually. I'm not sure why that is racist. I mean, I've seen I've seen pictures of movies of of Chinese people uh, that. The breakfast at Tiffany's is famous for the guy on the second floor. It's Mickey Rooney. It's Mickey Rooney. The guy. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to say anything <laughs> wrong, but that that looked. That, I mean, if I could imagine a, a Jewish guy right. like that, that doesn't look that that bad to me. The images. I think what's really the subtext here is that these he did these clearly racist cartoons back when everybody did this kind of stuff, and he did it, and and it got him in trouble for that. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know what Chinese people think of that cartoon. Well, that's not the book that's been. I mean, but that this book with the Chinese, but it's also the word Chinaman. Yes. Well, they, could take, they could take it out. They could change that. You're saying they're going to stop publishing all of Dr. Seuss's no, books? No. Six of them that they were problematic it's images cool. in. I mean, so they, they got to learn to distinguish between calling something racist because they used a word that was used at that time mm -hmm. and things which were actually racist at their time. When you were mocking the looks of black people, there was never a time when somebody could say, you know, that's you're mocking somebody. But the word Chinaman, I don't, I don't, I don't think he was mocking. Maybe he was. I don't know. I don't want to defend him. I, mean, I, I, I don't know. I think this is so crazy. Like you're gonna have to cancel like all art from like you know the 1400s. Like why can't you just put a disclaimer in front of the book? I mean, you're gonna stop publishing. You know, I, I don't like Mein Kampf is gonna keep going out there though. Like I don't understand. Well, look, the the the, the ultimate uh, difficult example. All roads of this sort lead to Huckleberry Finn. Yes, and, and nobody's quite figured out what to, if you if you think dr seuss was bad you know <laughs> well, I, think i think the difference is if there is a difference yeah. is that dr seuss is aimed at children whereas we, we can finn? That's huckleberry finn is aimed at young adults i think i mean nowadays first of all is anybody reading huckleberry finn um you know you read it for school but um not anymore, not yeah. anymore. but but dr seuss is about is for children so you you know, you can explain to an adult in an English class, but we read Huckleberry Finn, I was, I guess, in 10th grade. You can explain to the kids, look, this is how it was back then, and, and, and this is the words that they used. And you can't explain that to a three-year-old. A three-year-old, re or a four or five-year-old, you're reading Dr. Seuss to him. Um, you know, I think he's more impressionable. And so I think that if there is a difference, then that would be the difference. So I, I have, I think I've said this before, I have a, a take on the Huckleberry Finn thing that most people would expect from me. I think they shouldn't read Huckleberry Finn in high school. I think the dynamic of a classroom of mm -hmm. white people and black people together and N-word Jim and all, I, 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 don't think it's, I don't think Huckleberry Finn is, is racist. I think what we know about it, he was actually writing a, a, a comment against racism in the scheme of the book. But there's so many books out there, and it's it's awkward, and and we don't we don't have to dig in. I if I were a black parent, I'd say, why do you of all the books you got to read that book? To, and, right, and, and he, my the other son way. has to read this passage out loud. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like enough with Huckleberry Finn. Read it in college, or kids hopefully read books on their own. Not every book has to be assigned in school, right? Well, but uh, and I feel the same way about Dr. Seuss. I I. There's, you know, it all gets blended together. One thing is that his outrage and his criticism of Dr. Seuss as a person, I think that's ridiculous. But the fact that certain things are outdated, I saw an Odd Couple episode uh, last year, and in it, and don't forget, this is Gary Marshall, who I assume was a pretty left-wing guy at the time. They made some really, what I thought was kind of offensive joke about this black guy being a shoe shine guy. Like the joke was, you're black, so you probably shine shoes, you know? And I'm like, well, it, it just, how do, I don't know, first of all, like, it's hard to believe they thought that was okay back then, but they did. And I don't, like, I don't really have a problem with them cutting that scene out to show at, at dinner time to black and white families both. I, I, it's like, well, yeah, I saw an episode of Happy Days. Yeah. I guess I saw it on YouTube or whatever, but it was a scene where there was this black kid from the school that Fonzie and Richie knew, and they wanted to set him up with a girl and, and Fonzie said something like, where, where do you know a, a, a Negro girl or something like that? So, um, or I, I think they use the word Negro, but whatever. What, but the word Negro is one issue. The other issue is, is they didn't even, the, the notion was, is that him dating a white girl was completely right. not possible. 
because they said you want to set him up with a girl, but we don't know any black girls. So I don't know. I mean, that's probably how it was back in the fifties. Yeah. You know, um, or or it might've been how it was in the seventies where, you know, I don't know whether they were trying to make a statement about the fifties or whether they were talking about their own view of things and that they didn't think a black guy should date a white woman. I don't know, but I'd have to talk to, was that was Gary Marshall too, I think, Happy Days, right? So yes, yes. if he were yeah. around, I guess I'd ask him about that because he might've, it might've been in his mind, like, of course you can't set, up, set her up with him. And, and it, sh it should be said that Dr. Seuss then later, somebody mentioned to me, but I think it's true that he wrote some books were, which were pointedly critical of racism, you know, mm -hmm. so he, I don't know. I think Dr. Seuss was probably a good man. You know, he was a genius. I mean, is there any child uh, children's book author that can hold a candle to him? No, not, not that I really know that that world. But uh, um, maybe the guy with the giving tree. Uh, what's his name? Elsa Silverstein. I mean, Dr. Like... Seuss's books are a little bit annoying. Oh, sorry, y'all. <laughs> I have to, I have to go. Okay, uh, man. So this been good. Uh, thank you, oh, Wayne, again. The Ides of March. That's a that's this a was a great episode. Yes, it Thank was. Thank you. Thanks, brother. The Ides of March. I want to say one can... thing before you plug it. I told this to Wayne after. Okay, Perry, I'll go ahead. Oh, my God. I hate it when he fucking does that. Um, <laughs> Wayne, your, char your character on Curb was one of my all- Oh, my God. Favorite. Thank you so much for remembering. That's nice. Also, he I play, was- I play one of the worst guys in the world. He was also <laughs> illegally blonde, if you recall. <laughs> All right, we don't have to do all the credits, but thank and, you, that's very nice of you to say. But, but, and really, I was shocked you guys, anyway, thank you for reaching out. I love doing it. You. you can pre-order now, by the right? You can pre-order right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. It's available Kindle, hardcover, or both? Or, um, uh, Kindle softcover and on something called Audible, all probably on the 15th. The Audible might come out on the 17th because we're having some issues with that. Okay, so, so you, do you read it? Yes, unfortunately, you have to oh, hear this right voice. No, this no, voice. Can you handle it? I, Not no, great. I think it's good. Andy, what do you think? It's a good voice. Uh, oh, thank so, you. So, um, Amazon.com, the history of stand-up by Professor Wayne Fetter. From what to what? From racist Mark Twain <laughs> to Dave Chappelle. Right. They both it's use the N-word. They both use the N-word. <laughs> and beyond, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe you end at Chappelle podcast at comedyseller.com. You can email us with comments, questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive kind or of the destructive kind. We prefer the constructive kind. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time on Live. Bye, everybody. Okay, I'm leaving.